Turn your Bible with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And if you don't mind, let's stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Genesis chapter 1, just a few verses of Scripture here. Just going to read the first two verses. Genesis chapter 1, very first page of your Bible if you have trouble finding it. Very first page, very first chapter, first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Amen? The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word this morning, and we receive your word this morning. And as we receive it, would you open our hearts and our minds to truly hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Today, we're beginning a series entitled Beginnings. I'm calling it that because over the next few weeks, we're just going to look at the first few chapters of the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Now, Genesis, if, you, if you've never really, you know, we, we've heard that word before and, and we grew up in church hearing, but Genesis is simply a Greek word that means beginning. That's all it means. When it says Genesis, uh, it, it just means beginning. In the original Hebrew language, the very first word of the first verse of the first chapter of the Bible, the first word in the Bible is the Hebrew word, Bereshit, and that word means beginning. That's the very first word of the Bible, in the beginning. That's how we read it in English. Now, tradition tells us that this book, Genesis, was written or at least compiled by the prophet Moses in the Old Testament. However, this book tells the story of things that happened long before Moses' time. It begins with the epic story of God creating the universe out of nothing. And then it goes on to tell the story of, of God creating man and then God, uh, people growing and, and the world and population expanding. And then you get to Abraham and then you read about his descendants. And it ends actually with Abraham's great-grandson Joseph dying. And so this chapter, it's 50 chapters long, and it covers all of these first events in human history. But this morning, we're just going to look at the very first chapter. And you know, the Bible says in 1 Timothy, or excuse me, 2 Timothy 4.13, it says to devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. And I just felt like I, I was praying over this message, and, and I was praying how, how to you know, tackle this chapter. And I just felt from the Lord that we need to read the whole chapter before we go any further. So I had you stand for a couple of verses, but I want you to indulge me for just a moment. The words are going to be on your screen. You can follow along in your Bible. But we're going to read all, all this whole chapter really quick before we go further. So we already read the first two verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and, and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God said the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, day one. Verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters. There were, uh, separate the waters and there was an, uh, uh, and I lost my place. And under the expanse of the waters, there was above the expanse and it was so. And God called that expanse heaven above the waters and there was evening and there was morning the second day. 
And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God said that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation and plants, yielding seed and fruit trees, bearing fruit, which is in their seed, each according to its kind. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants, yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, which is their seed, according to their own kind. And God said, it was good. And there was evening and morning, day three. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be signs for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, to separate light from darkness, and God saw that it was good, and there was evening and morning, day four. And God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth. So God created sea creatures, and every living creature that moves with the waters swarm, and according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and the waters of the seas, and multiply. And there was evening, and there was morning. Day five. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground. God saw that it was good. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man and our image and our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that lives on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed. You shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given you. And it was so. And God saw everything he made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And just a couple of verses in chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the, earths, and the earth were formed, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work, what he had done, and he rested. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work he had done in creation. Thank you for sticking with me through that. I just believe in reading the scripture for what it is. Amen. And I want to point a few things out to you. In biblical interpretation, there's something called the repetition principle. And the repetition principle basically says that when you're trying to understand something in the Bible, when you're trying to understand a passage of scripture, you're sitting down to study, the first thing you do is you read it through. Just get a kind of plain reading of it. And then you go back and you read it a few more times and start to observe some things about that passage and, and look into some details of that passage. And then after a while, you will probably get to a point where you'll see repeated words or phrases. That's why it's called the repetition principle. What 
are some repeated words or phrases that pop up. And this principle, the repetition principle, says that oftentimes repeated words or phrases are there on purpose. God put them in his word on purpose. That these repeated words or phrases, they emphasize the theme, the subject, or the meaning of the text. Now, if we took Genesis chapter 1 and applied the repetition principle to that text, it's pretty obvious what the key repeated word is. Look at this. This is a representation of all the words in Genesis 1. What's the word that sticks out in Genesis chapter 1 out of all the other ones? God. God. The word God is used 36 times in 31 verses in Genesis chapter 1. It is repeated over and over and over again. So what's the point? See, Genesis chapter 1 is not simply the story of how God created the earth and the heavens. Yes, that's, that's the story, that's the narrative. But the purpose, what this chapter is really about, it isn't concerned with explaining the how of creation or the metaphysics or the physics or how photons of light can travel and create. It's not all about that. It's not trying to do that. The purpose is Genesis chapter 1 is concerned with introducing you and I to the one who did the creating. The subject of Genesis chapter 1 is God. Genesis 1 is more concerned with the who of creation than the how of creation. This chapter, according to the repetition principle, it's all about God. It's an introduction to who God is. We're introduced to the protagonist of the Bible, the main character, the star of the show. The picture's painted, the stage is set, the table is laid before us. You know, there are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. And in order to fully grasp the entire Bible, you've got to start with chapter 1, right? All the other 1188 chapters, they all flow out of this introduction of who God really is. And then there's the first verse of the first chapter. And it just in the beginning, if, kids, if you're uh, doing your uh, bulletin and you're filling in the blanks, this is your verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's zoom in just a little bit more there. In the beginning, God created. Let's just look at those first five words for just a moment. In the beginning, God created. Hebrew, Bereshit, Bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. Notice something. It doesn't say, in the beginning, the gods created. And it, it doesn't say, God was created in the beginning. Or it doesn't say, the gods came to be in the beginning. Now, I know you all know this stuff. You're church people. You get it. You've heard it. But when these words were first written four or 5,000 years ago, this is a bold statement. This is, this is insane compared to every other religious tradition that existed when Genesis was written. Every other religion in the world believed in multiple gods when Genesis was written. Every other religion in the world believed that the gods created more gods and gods had a beginning and gods had an end. But Genesis stands in the face of everything everyone believed at that time and it makes the bold, odd, audacious claim that every other idea the world has about God, about creation, about where we came from, it all 
is wrong. In the beginning, one God, not multiple gods. In the beginning, God created what we see. God didn't have a beginning. God was the beginning. God was the thing that created the beginning. Genesis makes the claim, there is one God, creator of heaven and earth, and that this one God existed forever. He still exists outside the natural confines of time and space. You know, astronomers and physicists tell us that the observable universe, what we can observe, is over 93 billion light years wide. That's how large the observable universe is. That means that it would take a ray of light 93 billion years to travel from one side of our universe to the other. That's just what we can observe, what we know right now. But before that 93 billion year light year universe was, God is. Before our Milky Way was spun into motion, God is. Before the sun was placed in the center of our solar system, God is. Before the earth ever made its first 24-hour rotation, God is. Even scientists that ascribe to the Big Bang Theory agree that everything we can observe and see in nature and, and everything in the observable universe had a beginning. It all came from something. I remember when I was in college, I was sitting in an astronomy class, and we had a guest speaker that day, and he was a world-renowned physicist, and he was explaining to us what the science was saying these days about the Big Bang Theory. And he made the claim, he said that the best science out there right now can tell us within just a matter of a few seconds what happened at the very beginning of the universe? That's what they, they say they can tell us within just a matter of a few seconds at the very beginning of the universe. They know exactly what happened. But even this world-renowned physicist who had all the answers in the world, he said, but you know what? There's a few seconds there at the beginning. We have no clue what happened. We have no clue how it got there. We don't know how that stardust got there to create that explosion and create, create that Big Bang. We don't know exactly what the Big Bang is. We just know something big happened. <laughs> Come on. I know what the Big Bang was. I know what happened. You can tell me it was 93 billion years ago or 6,000 years ago. I don't know when it was, but I know what the Big Bang was. God opened his mouth and his voice boomed across expanse of nothingness, and it created light, and it created universes, and it created stars. God was the Big Bang. I don't know when it happened. I'm not going to debate you on that, but I can tell you when you, science can't tell you what happened in those first few seconds, I know exactly what happened. God's voice spoke, and the universe was created. The God of the universe, the God who exists outside of time and space, the God we just read about, he opened his mouth and things started to happen. He opened his mouth in an unorganized, chaotic universe where there was nothing. All of a sudden, there was something. And it wasn't a bunch of gods. And it wasn't an inanimate dust object that just collided and exploded. Genesis 1-1, the whole point is God is God. He is the God who has no beginning and he has no end. He has no rival. He has no equal. None can stand beside him and none can challenge him. He is God. See, when Genesis was written, all of humanity at that point, they had lost their way and they had become separated from their creator. They had begun to believe in multiple gods and worship finite, fictitious figments of their imagination. But Genesis tells us God is God. God. 
There's no multiple gods. The world we see didn't just happen by accident. You can't go into nature and tell me that that just happened on its own, that it was just an accident of nature and an accident of, of statistics. We're not here by happenstance. We aren't the result of slime that one day, millions of years ago, crawled out of the ocean and became a human. We're not the product of an accidental explosion of stardust billions of years ago. There is a God who had a plan the entire time. He is the mastermind of creation. He is the originator of all that existed. He is the prime mover in all of the universe. The psalmist put it this way, Psalm 33, 6, he said, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and the starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. God is God, and there's no one like him. There's no one beside him. There's none that can compare with him. Nobody could ever challenge him. And here's the application for us today. If God is God... That means I'm not. If God is God, that means my job isn't. If, if God is God, that means my family is not. If God is God, that means my issue or my problem is not. See, if God is God, then that means that everything that I am Everything I have, everything I think I know and believe, everything I try, everything I think I own, it all has to eventually bow before the real God. You know, in 21st century America, most of us, we're not polytheists worshiping a bunch of false idols or gods or worshiping statues, but we do tend to elevate other things in our lives to a place of godlike status in our lives. We do tend to believe that other things, created things, are a necessity for us, that they are our source, our provision, or our need. To many people, money and material become a god, material possessions. Their time, their efforts, and their focus are always on how to get more, how to make another dollar, how to increase my bank account, how to increase my financial portfolio. That's a god. When your life revolves around that, and that's the most important thing in your life, that's your God. To many people, relationships become their God. They can't function without a boyfriend or a girlfriend. They hop from one relationship to another. They become a chameleon, and they change colors depending on which relationship they're in. And they will, they will change even what they believe or their likes or their interests. They'll even adapt their morals or values to fit that relationship. Guess what? That relationship's your God. There are many people, their kids become their gods. A child dictates the parent's choices. It starts as good intentions. You want to give your child the best. You want them to have what you never had. You want them to be treated better than your parents treated you. But sooner or later, this child, his schedule or her preferences, they begin running your life. And instead of the parent teaching the child how to live for God, the child teaches the parent how to live for them. I, I can't count how many times I've, I've been in full-time ministry now over eight years. I can't tell you how many times I've sat with a parent or counseled a family or worked with a family where the family's in total chaos and the family's in total dysfunction. And if I traced it back, it would be traced back to at some point that child started dictating to the parent. And the parent allowed it. And the parent made that child a god. And listen, your child is not strong enough to be your God. Your child was not designed, was not created to bear the weight of your burdens. 
and of your problems and your issues. He was not created to be strong enough to worship you. He was created so that you could show him who to really worship. And kids can become your gods. Some people in addiction becomes their god. It's amazing when you study addiction how similar addiction is to religion. You look at addiction, they have rituals. Religions have rituals. There's usually a community that 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 addiction takes place in and that substance use happens in. Religions have community. There's gatherings, there's even sets of beliefs or philosophy all around the use of that substance. Addiction becomes a religion in a person's life. It becomes their community. It becomes their base. It becomes the thing they rely on. And they use that substance to support them, to get them through, to soothe them, to heal them, to satisfy them. That's a God. That's an idol. But here's the deal. People aren't God, and money isn't God, and no substance can be God. Those things will always fail you at one point or another. But God is God, and nothing's holding him up. Nothing's propping him up. He is God all by himself. He doesn't require anything. He is strong all by himself. He doesn't need anybody. God is God. He is the one who created all the universe. He created us. And you and I will one day have to stand before that God. God is God. Watch Sam for Because Genesis 1, not only is God God, God is sovereign. That's what Genesis tells us. See, Genesis is written to correct all of the mistakes and mistaken ideas people had about God, about creation, about the universe. The belief at the time was that there was a bunch of gods, and they were all competing with one another for power. If you've ever studied any of the mythologies or or different things, you know that those gods, they're always fighting about something. There's always a dispute. They're always arguing over something, and uh, they competed for power and authority. And not only that, but they believed that everything in the world that they could observe— was a God itself. That's how you ended up believing in a sun God, in a moon God, in a mountain God, a river God, an ocean God. You know, they, everything had a God behind it. And while they believed all these other gods were supernaturally powerful, they also believed that all these other gods were limited and finite. They believed that these gods constantly battled with each other for power and influence and input in the natural world. But Genesis says, no, 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 no. There's no sun God The sun was created by God. No, there's no moon God. The moon was created. There's no ocean God. God filled that ocean drop by drop on his own. He is the one who created it. He is sovereign over all of it. And this God that created everything else that you're worshiping, this God, he is sovereign. He is eternal. He's the final authority. And he's the final power. He's all powerful. Now, I want to deal as a pastor with something here because it's my job as a pastor to protect the flock against bad teaching and equip you when bad teaching comes along. I want to deal with this word sovereign for just a moment. There are some people out there that will use the idea of God's sovereignty, and they define sovereignty to mean that God determines everything that happens in the world and in creation. It's a very popular teaching out there, that he determines everything that happens in the universe. Here's how that plays out in everyday life. I've heard these. These are real-life examples that I've heard. A rape victim being told everything happens for a reason. The mother whose child died in a tragic accident. This is all part of God's plan. The cancer patient's told everything happens in accordance with God's will. 
And then there, there's one that we hear a lot, and I want you to hear, I, there's some nuance here, so track with me, okay? I know what people, I think they mean when they say this, but this, I, God is in control. Sometimes we say that and we don't really realize what we're saying. Now, I know that these are good-hearted people, and I know a lot of times in these instances we're just trying to say something to bring comfort. And I know I've said things like this in the past, and maybe even you have, but I want to caution you. Yes, we believe in God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. But that does not mean that God causes every little detail of every little event in the universe. God is not some puppet master who is pulling strings, making people do things. That's not what sovereignty means. The sovereignty of God didn't cause that man to attack that woman and abuse her. The sovereignty of God didn't cause that cancer just to prove a point. The sovereignty of God didn't cause that horrific accident and take that child's life. But the fact that God's sovereign does mean that that man who attacked that woman will have to answer to God one day. The sovereignty of God does mean that one day cancer will bow to the name of Jesus. The sovereignty of God does mean that one day uh, th that we can trust God with our loved ones who have died tragically or have gone on or when accidents have taken place. So when we say that God is sovereign, it doesn't mean that he caused that thing that happened in your life. It doesn't mean that he dictates every little detail of every action that takes place in a person's life. What it means is that God is the ultimate and final authority over everything everything that happens, and that one day we will all have to stand before him. We will all have to answer for our actions, including the enemy of your souls. He will have to stand before God. Satan himself will have to give an answer, and the Bible already tells us what happens when he comes before God. He is cast into a lake of fire. He is forever separated from us because God is sovereign, and he has good plans for us. When we say that God is sovereign, we're, you know, we don't have to take comfort in these weird plateau, uh, platitudes and, 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 and cliches that people say that are horrible theology. When we say God is sovereign, this is what we can take comfort in. Romans 8, 28. And we know all things God works for the good of those who love him. That's the sovereignty of God. That no matter what happens in your life, somehow, in some way, maybe in eternity, God will work it out for your good. That's the sovereignty of God. That's what we mean when we say God is in control. We don't mean he caused that bad thing to happen. We just mean that he's going to fix it. Amen? God is God. There aren't many gods. There's one God. He's sovereign. He created the things uh, that other people were worshiping at the time. He's the final authority over all of creation, and we'll all have to answer and bow down before him one day. He's the one, the only one, who can take what was meant for evil and turn it to good. God is God. God is sovereign. And next, God speaks. Genesis 1, it introduces you to a God who actually will talk to you, who actually has a voice. I love in Genesis that God didn't just go to work with his hands and create something. I love that we worship a God who is so powerful that all he has to do is open his mouth and things that don't exist all of a sudden do exist. That's the kind of, he speaks. He didn't need any tools to create the world. He didn't have to save up money to buy the supplies. He didn't have to go and collect the raw materials. All God needed was his word. People have worshipped the sun god for thousands of years, but the sun god's never spoken. People have prayed to mountains and rivers and trees for thousands of years, but that mountain, that river, that trees, it ain't never said one word. 
People have went before statues and worshipped statues before, but that statue was carved by a man, and that statue has never spoken a single word. They have worshipped a pantheon of deities for thousands of years. Eastern religions are older even than Christianity, but those statues have never said a single thing. They've never fixed a single problem. But the God who created... He did it by speaking. God spoke, and suddenly, where before he opened his mouth, light had never existed before. All of a sudden, the universe is flooded with glorious light. God spoke, and the gases that make up the sun all of a sudden ignited, and it was lit for the first time. God spoke, and the waters of the earth were collected and separated, and land sprouted up out of the sea. We worship a God who speaks, and when he speaks, things change. We worship a God who opens his mouth and things that have never existed before suddenly are. We worship a God who has power in his words. And here's the deal. God didn't stop speaking on the sixth day. He didn't just stop speaking when he was done creating. He spoke to men and women and inspired them to write the scriptures. You and I, we have the word of God at our ability and our, at our disposal on a daily basis. Never before in the creation, in the history of mankind, have we had so much access to the word of God that in just a split second, you can find any verse you want to find. God has spoken through his word, and there is no excuse to not know his word and seek his word. He spoke to men and women and gave them the scriptures, but every day, not only can you read his word, but you can experience his spoken word. You can hear his voice. He didn't stop speaking with the last word of this book. He is still speaking today, and if you'll listen, he'll speak to you right now. He'll lead you and he'll guide you. There's a still small voice that will prompt you and correct you and influence you. He'll send a stranger your way to give you a, a, an answer, an encouraging word. He'll send a friend to you to come pray for you. And, and, and when you're feeling lost and disoriented, we serve a talking, communicating God. And if we listen, he will speak. I want to encourage you today, before every life decision, before addressing difficulty, before you cuss that person out, when you're not sure the right thing to do, just stop for a moment and talk to the God of the universe. Ask him to speak to you, to lead you, guide you. Wait on his voice. Jesus said it this way. He said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Let me just give you a few practical things for hearing the voice of the Lord. Number one, spend time in the Bible. If you want to know the voice of the Lord, the first thing you do is look at the scripture, what he has already spoken. How do you get to recognize someone's voice? You listen to him. You hear them. You find out what they're like, who they are. You know, these days we have caller ID, but you remember in the past when you didn't have caller ID and you answered your phone, and some people when they called your house, you didn't know who they were, and you maybe needed them to talk for a little bit before you understood who they were, but there's some people that you're real close to that is, all they had to do was say, hey, and you knew exactly who it was. That's how it is with God. How do you get to know his voice? You spend time with him. You spend time in his word. So spend time in the word. If you want to hear God's voice, ask him. Don't just bark orders in your prayer life and of how God should be running the universe. Yes, pray. Yes, ask him things. But then stop and say, okay, Lord, now you speak to me. I've spoken to you. I've given you my list. I've given you the things that I'm worried about and things that are going on in my life. Will you speak to me? And then be quiet. <laughs> You don't, don't say, okay, Lord, speak to me, and then just ignore him, and then just go on about your business. Get quiet. So many times we get frustrated when we feel like God isn't speaking to us or leading us, but often it's because we can't stand the quiet. 
we can't stand to just sit still for a moment and allow the Lord to speak to us. When you spend time in prayer, when you spend time with the Lord, which you should do daily, I want to encourage you, get yourself a paper Bible. (laughs) You know, they, they still make these. You can get them. I'll give you one if you don't have one. Turn this thing off, all right? And just get quiet before the Lord without any distractions. I will promise you, if you'll make a habit of doing that on a regular basis, you will be amazed at how much he would really speak to you and how much you'd recognize it. Now, most of us, we're not going to have an angel visit us in our bedroom when we're reading the Bible, and we're not going to have this, like, glory cloud come down. No, God speaks through that still, small voice, those promptings and those urgings and those leadings, those little gentle nudges in your spirit. And the more you read the Word, the more you spend time with Him, the more you'll recognize that that prompting or that nudging or that urge, that's from the Holy Spirit. And last thing, just to, when God speaks, obey. (laughs) This is a big deal, all right? See, some of y'all, he's been speaking to you for a long time, you just hadn't obeyed it yet, and then you're complaining because he's not still speaking. (laughs) He's still waiting for you to get in line with the last thing he told you to do. See, part of this deal of hearing God is getting in the habit of when he speaks, you obey. When he says something, when he nudges you, you go. When he gives you a direction, you do it. When he says, go pray for that, but you, do, you pray for it. When he says, go do this, go, go do it. When he says, to turn this page, go, you do it. You learn to obey the voice of the Lord, and the more comfortable you obeying God, the more easy it will be to hear his voice. God is God. God's sovereign. God speaks. And last thing, I'm almost done. God rests. On the seventh day, God rested. You ever bought a new piece of furniture? You went and bought a couch, and you suckered some friend that had a pickup truck and helping you move it, and then you worked real hard to get it moved into your house, right? And you get it in just the right spot. What's the first thing you do after you get that couch in the right spot? You sit in it, right? You ever worked real hard to put a piece of furniture together or something, a chair together, and after you, after you do it, after you get it all, the bolts tightened and everything in the right place, what's the first thing you do? you got to test that thing out. You worked hard. You deserve a break. You deserve a rest. That's what God did. God didn't, God didn't rest because he was tired, all right? He didn't rest because it was so laborious for him to speak out his word and for things to happen. Here's why he rested. Because God wanted to enjoy what he created. See, the whole point of the seventh day is to tell you that God didn't just create and be a master clockworker and say, I'm going to set this thing in motion, and then I'm going to walk away and leave it on its own. God created something, and then he rested in it. He spent time in it. This tells us that the God that we worship, he is not some far-off and distant God. You know, before the fall, before sin entered the world, the Bible says that God walked with Adam and Eve on a daily basis. He was there. He rested. He spent time with them. What's this mean in your life? This means that the God that created you, the God that knew you before you were ever born, before you were ever even a thought in your parents' mind, that God desires to dwell with you. He desires relationship with you. He doesn't just create you and leave you on your own in the world to figure it out on your own. No, he rests. He says, you know what? I created you, and now I'm going to spend time with you. I'm going to hang out with you. I'm going to, I'm going to be in relationship with you. I'm going to be close to you. You don't have to be on your own. You never have to. I'm going to rest right here. And guess what? Because he's resting, he never worries. He's never taken off guard. You, I, I want to say God, God never really stopped resting. Nothing's, nothing's taken him by surprise. 
Nothing has shocked God. Nothing you've ever done has just completely just shocked him. And he, I can't believe that so-and-so did that. No, not surprised. He's resting. He's cool. And when you can do that, see, nothing else can, no other being in the universe is like that. Every other being in the universe has the propensity to be influenced by chaos and by destruction. God can't be. He's just resting. And he's resting right here. His presence is resting right here. He wants relationship with you and with me. He didn't set us in motion and then take off. He said, I'm going to make it, and I'm going to rest in it. I'm going to spend time with it. I'm never going to give up on it. I'm always going to be here for it. He rested. That's the God we worship.